Let's have a seat where we're at. We're in a new series this week. We start the book of Nehemiah. We just finished what was supposed to be six weeks in uh, just talking about trusting God. And then we had uh, kind of a snowpocalypse happen in the midst of that. So it ended up being five weeks. But I didn't want to delay the start of Nehemiah. This has been a book that for probably six months or more, my heart has been increasingly, uh, not anxious in a bad way, but excited to delve into this text, this this particular book, because I think uh, for us in this stage of life as a church plant, uh, finished out year two, having just started year three, there's going to be a lot of parallels for us, a series called uh, Building in Faith. This is what Nehemiah did, and it's what God has called us to do. And uh, so I think there's a lot for us to glean from the text of this book. I want to start this morning by giving you the historical context of the book of Nehemiah, and then kind of move into just the first few verses of uh, the text today. Uh, In all the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are actually written as one volume. There's no break. Uh, but I think uh, in studying this week, verse 1 of Nehemiah, chapter 1, clearly indicates the beginning of another book and justifies the separation we have in our Bibles. Now, both Ezra and Nehemiah are post-captivity, post-exilic books, which record the return of the Jews to their homeland after being in, uh, in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And um, if, you, if you remember your, your Israeli history, maybe, maybe you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, but uh, Israel had been a whole nation, and then at one point after uh, David died, Solomon reigned, and after Solomon died, his two sons basically split the kingdom. And you had Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and so those was divided kingdom, and then when, the, when God finally began to send judgment on their nation, Israel went into captivity first because they were further along into idolatry. And then later, Judah went into captivity as well. So um, they've been in Babylon for 70 years. And uh, this is predicted in both Jeremiah, the prophet, and Isaiah. Uh, If you want to read historical accounts of events that happened during the exile, books that you would want to read in the Bible would be Ezra, Nehemiah, which we're going to read, and Esther. Esther happens while they're in exile in Babylon. Uh, the prophetic books that deal with that period of time would be Haggai. And we, we actually went through Haggai a couple of years ago as a church. It took us two weeks, short book. Um, Zechariah and Malachi would be the three books that prophetically deal with this exile period. And so it's important for us to know that once Israel went into captivity, they were never again an independent whole nation of people until 19... 19- 48, May 18, 1948, God did a miraculous thing. And Israel was rebirthed among the nations. And so it's important to know that once uh, once they were a people, they ceased to, to really be a people nationally, and then God gave them a nation again, a unified nation, which is a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself. And at this point, as we, as we enter into Nehemiah's account, the temple in Jerusalem has already been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and that's detailed in Haggai and also in Zechariah. Uh, excuse me, also in Ezra. And, uh, and I want to just point out this morning, Nehemiah is a layman. He's a businessman. He's not a clergy. He's not a priest. Uh, and, and so he's, 
He's coming back to Jerusalem about 15 years after Ezra has gone back. And, and this is so important in our context. We talk about this series, Building in Faith, because this is a book that reveals what ordinary, non-clergy people can do when their hearts are devoted to the things of God. You don't need a Master's of Divinity or a PhD in theology to be useful for the kingdom. I've always wondered, this is baffling to me, like, if you've mastered divinity, why do you need a doctorate in theology? Right? So I've mastered divinity. That would be something, right, to master divinity. Um, you may not know this about me personally, I have a bachelor's degree in music performance. I have a, a vocal performance major. And I have some credit hours towards a master's in theology, but I don't, I don't have any postgraduate credentials at all. And I love uh, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is when the Sanhedrin were trying to intimidate Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they were astonished, and they took note that those men had been with Jesus. You know what the qualification for ministry is? Being close to Jesus. Right? And so it's, it's worth noting and we'll, we'll delve deeper into this in the weeks ahead. Daniel's prophecy here in the 70 weeks is kicked off. This decree we're going to see in the text that, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls is, is right out of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. The decree to rebuild the temple, uh, that was King Cyrus in 536 B.C. Uh, the temple was finished 20 years later in 516. And that decree you'll find in Ezra chapter 1. But this decree to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls is a totally different decree. It's a totally different king. This is Artaxerxes Longimanus, and it's in 445 B.C., in the 20th year of his reign. And we'll read this when we get to Nehemiah chapter 2. So you need to know some things about Nehemiah, okay, as we go to this text. Nehemiah is a man of action. He's a man of action. You'll see this keyword over and over again in these 13 weeks. You'll see the word so. So, Nehemiah did this. Right? The enemies of God's people came and they tried to intimidate the people of God. So, Nehemiah did something about it. Right? The walls were broken down and, and the people of God were in danger. So, Nehemiah did something about it. Right? He's a man of action and he goes through a great personal crisis. His faith is tried and tested. And, and, and in the end, he proves to be a great example of how God can work mightily in and through someone who is humble and prayerful. And that's really the key to Nehemiah's success. He is humble and he is prayerful at every turn. So this, this parallel here I've been chewing on this week is that uh, you've got this, this, this one guy. He, he's not a significant player in, in the grand scheme of things. He's a cupbearer to the king. We'll talk about that in a minute, but just one man, uh, an Israelite, part of the people of God, who has a heart for the city of God, and recognizes that it's in ruins and that it needs it needs it needs to be more than it is. It needs repair. It needs his best effort in that. So just one man, far smaller than this great need that he sees. He's part of the covenant people of God, longing for the city of God and for God's reputation to be glorified in the earth. And, and he sees where the people of God need to pour their efforts out in his day. And he, and he sees the problem and he, and, he, and he sees the solution as well. And I, I, I look at us. I look at us as a, as a little church, a little congregation. I go, we're just a tiny little congregation right now. 
in, in, a, in a little country, uh, rural town that's becoming suburban. Who, who are we? What is family? Right? And, and, and we're far smaller than the great need all around us in our day. We're part of the covenant people of God by the blood of Jesus. And we're longing for the Spirit of God to do a work in our community and in our culture and for God to be glorified. And we see where the people of God need to pour out their best efforts in our day. And, and so there's this, there's this parallel, there's these parallel tracks of Nehemiah and the, and the Israelites, the people of God, and, and us as the church, as the people of God today, going, I just don't know how we're going to accomplish that thing that needs to be done. So Nehemiah's story is analogous to the church. It's incredibly applicable to us in the Mass Road. So let's just look at the text this morning. If you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1. Just verses 1 through 3 this week. And this won't be indicative of the pace that we will take with Nehemiah. Three verses a week. We'll be here for the next six years. Uh, We're going to go a little faster, but I just wanted to take time this morning to talk about one element of Nehemiah that I think is pivotal to us as we move forward. It's got to be laid in like bedrock for us, a foundation of this thing before we can really move forward. So look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who, had, who escaped, who had survived the exile, and, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble. And shame. And the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Let's go back and look at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. That's important because he's a nobody, really. He's a nobody. He's a slave. He's in exile. He's an indentured servant to the king of Babylon. And we know later in the text he's the cupbearer. Unless you think that's some position of prominence, like he's an advisor being close to the king and the most powerful king on the planet at that time, and he can just maybe whisper, you know, things to the king, like, hey, you know, have you ever thought about doing this thing, right? Because I'm the cupbearer, right? That's not how this works at all, okay? Nehemiah is the crash test dummy for Artaxerxes' food and drink. That's what he is. He's expendable, is what he is. He's a Jew. He's expendable. And, and so you, you get to taste everything that's brought to the king to eat and drink first. You get to taste it first. You know why? Because it might be poison. People typically don't like monarchs and they like to get rid of them. And if it's poison, you're the one who finds out. Way to go. Crash test dummy, right? And so the, if somebody's trying to assassinate the king, the plot is uncovered by the cupbearer. And, and if the king dies, usually it's because the cupbearer's in on the thing because... The food and drink has to get past him, right? That's the whole thing in, in Esther, by the way, that, that whole thing with the cupbearer. Right? It's not a glamorous life. It's not a glamorous life. You're a demoted secret service agent that nobody trusts to carry a weapon. Not a glamorous life. So, so they make you test the food instead. So he says, it, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel. So dead of winter, December-ish, uh, 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. Susa is the citadel as a strong fortified city. It was built by Darius, the Mede. Um, if you read the book of Daniel, you'll find Darius was a king who was tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. Right? That's King Darius. He's the one that built this city. 
So this is later. And then look at verse 2 and 3. Uh, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So this colony of exiles returned home. Uh, and seem, they seem to have made very little progress over the last 30 years. Remember that Babylon had a period, had a policy of assimilation. So when they would come in to take over a land or take over a nation or a people, they would take the best and the brightest of everybody, especially the young people, and they would take them out first and take them back to Babylon and train them and indoctrinate them and assimilate them into the culture. They'd be schooled and taught by the best teachers. Uh, and take the best and the brightest from whatever land they conquered. We know that from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Rakshak and Benny, for those of you who grew up on Veggie Tales. I don't recognize those names. I say Rakshak and Benny. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. So if the conquering power had to return to put down further revolt, they then take the bulk of the remaining population into servitude and leave only the destitute in the land behind. Only the weak, the poor, uh, the needy, they leave those people. And this was the case with Israel. They, they had, Babylon had, had to come back and deal with some, some stuff, some political maneuvering. And, and uh, so the people who remained in the land for the duration of this exile were basically struggling dirt farmers with little to no ambition. They were just struggling. And then the exiles who come back from Babylon were trying to help rebuild this thing. It, it took a lot of effort to get the temple built. Um, they started that progress with zeal. They were very excited about rebuilding the temple. But if you go back and read Ezra and you read Haggai, what you find out is that they, they really quickly sunk into spiritual apathy and, and just kind of indifference. And in fact, God rebukes them in Haggai 1. He says, you guys are more concerned about building your paneled houses than building my house. What's the deal? So they get your priorities straight, right? And so they build the temple, but it's only a shadow of the temple before. Solomon's temple was this grand uh, wonder of the world, and uh, the second temple is just this small by comparison. In fact, it it says in the text of Ezra that the elders who had lived long enough, had been in Jerusalem before the exile, had been in exile, and then come back, wept at the side of the new temple. They were like, this is... It's nothing compared to what once was. And wept. So, morale is low. Uh, maybe that's okay, just skip all that, just said this. Morale is low. Okay? Not a lot of hoorah, let's whip them up into a frenzy, let's get her done. That's not happening. It's just, everybody's just kind of standing around going, I just don't know what to do. And Nehemiah's response to these things is not first, all right, I got a plan. I know exactly what we need to do. Let's jump in there, do X, Y, and Z. That's not not what the text says. In fact, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. His heart is sad. And we'll see in the rest of chapter 1 next week, his heart is really broken to hear the news that the land of his people was in ruins still. And that the people had lost their heart. They had lost their courage. They had lost their direction. And he's broken over this. It just seems to me that the majority of men and women that I've known, uh, even when touched by God with a spiritual fervor that lights a fire in them, that those men and women find it hard to keep that fire burning for very long. You've got to be true. Like you have scenes where you just, 
man, I'm just passionate about Jesus, and I'm excited about being on a mission for Jesus, and then, and then just nothing big, right? No, no sideways, like something slams into your life, but just a series of small things. Kind of, what you do is you find one day you wake up and you go, I'm just not, I just don't have that same fire. I don't have that same passion. And there are there's so many factors that could just suck the oxygen right out of the room and snuff out that fire. And the fact is we're fickle-hearted creatures. We're easily distracted. We're easily discouraged. And we've all experienced how much easier it is to be enthusiastic about something way over there than about doing the hard work right here. How many of you had that experience? I get missions, let's send them some money. Alright, who's going with us to Japan for three weeks? Some of you, yeah. Some of you are like, I'm not going to do Yeah, we're going to do some search ministry over there. Whew, a lot more hands. Okay. So, uh, when you get right in the thick of like trying to get your hands dirty in ministry and really walk with the Lord and what He wants you to do, um, you have to deal with motivating people and in your own morale and your own heart and unexpected twists and turns. And it can be really debilitating and demotivating and just stinking hard. It's kind of like church planting. As you guys have been around for any amount of time, it's like, man, there's some high highs and some low lows. And, and Jesus is, is in every point in that spectrum. And you've got to just find him and cling to him in those moments. And so God raised up fresh vision and fresh fire in this man, Nehemiah, because he's at a distance, right? He's seeing us at a distance. I'm just passionate about this. Lord, use me to bring change. And so here are the similarities. The news of the state of God's people in their homeland was overwhelming to Nehemiah. He's overwhelmed in the situation. It seems hopeless and insurmountable. And I would just say for us as a church, like the parallel in our culture is the destruction of Western civilization. Our, our nation is just like imploding. Uh, I know I've shared this before, but... Um, this happened in Fulton County, the, the stadium that was in Atlanta. I saw this happen, and then I know it happened with the, uh, the stadium in Seattle. Whenever they tear down a building in a city, you can't explode because the shrapnel goes everywhere. That's bad. So you implode. And what they do is they set charges all through the structure and the key points that support the weight of the structure so that when those charges blow, the thing collapses in on itself. It doesn't go out. It goes in. Right? It's pretty pretty good science. Um, so if you've ever seen a building implode, watch it happen. Uh, you'll, you'll hear the countdown, and then you'll hear the charges go off. You'll hear the explosions. And then there's this weird pause. And it feels like a long time. And then the building starts to crumble in. It's like the explosions happen, and those structures that bear all the weight of the, of the structure, those pillars, all the support structures, start to collapse, and, and it takes a little bit of time for the weight of the building to, to force it down in, in on itself. And it's this weird pause. You hear the explosions, and the building's still standing. And then it starts to come down. And I would just say to you, I, I, feel, like, I feel like we live in the pause right now in our country. Like we're living in that pause. Waiting for the whole thing to just kind of top in. I, I feel overwhelmed by that. Certainly, Nehemiah felt overwhelmed by his circumstance. But God stirs us and He uses hearts that are broken. Here's the key part. Here's the application. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. God uses hearts that are broken to accomplish His will. Broken hearts. He says, Nehemiah, build that wall. 
Was that too political? Maybe too, too political for our day. Uh, billion, <laughs> I just had to. I, I, all we had one. Should I say that? Should I not say that? Yeah, the little devil on that shoulder wins. I'm going to say it. Uh, building in faith is the theme of this series. And building in faith is the theme of year three for us at Emmaus Road. And the key to accomplishing all of this is something that's going to be counterintuitive for most of us. It's going to feel yucky. It's generally unattractive to us. But I'm telling you right now, if we don't embrace this reality, we will not succeed. Here it is. Brokenness. Brokenness is the key. The desperation that mourns over brokenness. Our own brokenness. The the brokenness of our culture. The brokenness of our community. Are the things that have to drive us to the feet of Jesus in humility and prayer again and again and again. We, We have to embrace brokenness. The plain truth is that God delights to use broken things. Brokenness is a condition whereby God allows difficult circumstances in our lives to drive us to complete dependence on Him. Because it's required in that, in that heart. And so here's the deal. I believe God wants great things for a mainstream church. like this. I'm standing here telling you, I'm trying to be as enthusiastic as I can and put on a good face, but my flesh does not like this. I have wrestled all week with this. And I, I had fear before the Lord because I'm, I'm, I'm the one who stands up and delivers the message from the Word and I'm like, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so through Christ we share abundantly in His comfort also. You can't have the comfort without the sufferings. God's purpose is to use broken things. He gets all the glory and all the honor. And so brokenness is required. If we're going to move forward as a church, if we're going to build in faith, if we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah, study the life of this man and what God used him to accomplish, and we're going to try to walk in those footsteps, brokenness is required. It's not optional. It is recognizing, confessing, openly embracing the reality that all that we have and that all that we are, all of our resources pulled together, 100% of everything we have and all our strength is not enough. It's not enough to accomplish what God wants to do. We're not strong enough. We're not clever enough. We're not smart enough or talented enough to do the things that God wants to do. And so we, so we have to embrace brokenness. James would tell us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Right? But you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the vision, the revelations that God gave to me, this thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep Paul broken, right? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. I said, please, God, take this thing that should leave me. But God said, no. God said, no. No, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ that I am content with my weakness. I'm content with insults and hardships, persecutions and calamity. For when I am weak, He is strong. He is strong. God gets the glory. So brokenness is a state of mind whereby we recognize and embrace our limitations, our weaknesses. It's a place of full surrender to His will. The trials that we endure are a heartfelt invitation from the Holy Spirit to draw near and press in and find our life and strength in Him alone. Not in our circumstances, not in our effort, not in our spouse, not in our children, not in my work. I could go on. Eventually I'm going to find yours. Let's go ahead and say out right now. Yeah. We find a place where we're finding our value, finding our meaning apart from Jesus. He will find it. He will put his finger on it. You have to surrender. So brokenness is required, but also brokenness is desire. It's desire. We talk a lot as Christ followers about wanting to see the power of God on display. And we openly admit that we want His power to manifest in our lives and in our circumstances. We, we want His power in our relationships and in our families. I, I want to see His power in the, in the place where I, I spend all my time every day and the people I interact with. And for some of you, that's your workplace and on and on and on. But we, we largely don't know what it requires or what it takes to see that happen. Right? We don't know that it means we have to be broken people to see that come about. But then some of us do know that. And when we do know that, we don't like it. We just don't like it. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to be humble. Second Corinthians 12, remember we just read, Paul said, from the Lord, God's words to Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power, the thing you want so badly to see on display at work, is only made perfect in your weakness. So when we muscle up, man, I got this figured out. I want you to know I have a strategy for the next five years, and I've got to lock in. If we just do these ten things, we'll be a church of 500, and we'll plant two churches in five years. And stop, 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 stop. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to embrace weakness. I just want you to be humble. Just embrace brokenness. Just like lean into the Holy Spirit. That's why Gideon had to sit home most of his army. You remember the story in the book of Judges? God brought me down to like 300 guys. It happened thousands. He's like, too many. Too many. You know why? He says it in the book. He says, I want the glory, not you. Send those guys home. Send them home. I'm going to do it with 300. That's why Moses, remember stuttering Moses? <laughs> he insisted on bringing Aaron to speak for him because he wasn't a good speaker. That's why Moses was able to park the Red Sea. And bring defeat to the enemies of God's people. Because he was weak. And God was strong. Joseph. Raised up out of the depths of an Egyptian prison. Made ruler over the most powerful empire on the planet at that time. Second only to Pharaoh himself. Broken. Broken in that prison. And usable for the purposes of God. We just go on. I can just give you a whole Bible, okay? Jehoshaphat put the singers first out in front so they defeat the Midianite army. 100,000 trained soldiers. Do this thing. It's counterintuitive. It's not going to feel good. You're not seeking your, you're sending your strongest warriors to fight the battle. You're going to send the choir. See, God's worst enemy in all of this is not the devil. 
God's worst enemy is our ego. That's the thing that opposes God in this more than any other entity. It's my ego. It's me. The thing that gets in the way more than any other thing, the thing that trips up what the Lord wants to do in us and through us and among us is my selfishness, my ego. And so, if I could just set a challenge before us this morning, it would be to recognize and embrace brokenness in our lives. As we move into this series, as we move into year three, as we continue in our fellowship together, midweek in our life groups, it means laying ourselves down on the altar, killing our egos, dying to self just like Jesus commands us. I love, I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. If you know the story, the backstory there, his uh, affair with Bathsheba, and then in an attempt to cover it up, he murders her husband, Uriah, and, um, and then it's only in the place of brokenness that David realizes, and he writes these words, that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Broken and contrite God doesn't want us to bring an animal or a thing to sacrifice on the altar. He wants us on the altar. He wants us broken. Paul would say it precisely that way in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That our reasonable act of worship, right? He says, you may test it and approve of the will of the Lord as good, pleasing, and perfect will. But he says before that, worship the Lord. Here's what worship looks like. It's your whole life. Be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. He doesn't want animals on the altar. He wants us. He wants us. Here's what we do. We're like Cain. We're not like Abel. We tend to be like Cain. Remember, both he and Abel brought their best effort to the Lord. It wasn't a lack of effort or intentionality in Cain. They both brought their best to the Lord. But that tells us something. It tells us that sometimes what we think is our best is not actually best. It's not actually the best. And it's not actually what God wants. See, God, I'm just going to give you more money this year. God, I'm going I'm to do ministry better this year. I, I'm going I'm to study the Bible more this year. I'm going to be a more passionate worshiper this year. Those are not bad things. Just seriously, those are not bad things. But we bring our best vegetables to God when He's asked for all that. We bring our best vegetables to God. But what he wants is a lamb. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to break you. And we naively assume that our sincerity is all that matters. But what God desires most is for us to be laid on the altar. And to lay there on the altar our impulse to control things. To put on the altar our need to be in charge of things. To lay down our desire to have it our way. That's the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. And, and I want you to know that the hardship that's in your life, or that may be coming into your life that you can't perceive right now, is not necessarily linked to sin in your life. This idea of brokenness, I think our default is to say, I'm struggling, my heart is hurting, it must be because I'm sinning. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Sometimes it is linked to that. And we do reap the consequences of bad decisions that we sow. But hardship and brokenness is not synonymous with punishment. If it were, Paul would be the worst sinner in the whole world. I mean, here's a dude who was, what, flogged five times, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, uh, bitten by a poisonous snake, 
<laughs> just deserted by his companions. Like God, God wants to break our egos and our pride, not our spirits. Paul was a broken man. He was not a defeated man. And so God wants to break us. I hope you're beginning to see this clearly. God does not see the way that man sees. With man, uh, when things are broken, what do you do with broken things in your house? Fix it. You fix it. Darn you, John. You're supposed to throw them away. That's what we do with broken things. You're a fixer. Yeah, some things can be fixed, right? But typically we discard broken things. We put them in the trash. We're done with them. We're done with them. We're a disposable culture. They're no longer desirable to be used. I just want to say to you this morning, God highly values broken things. He loves broken things. Because God's a fixer, right, John? God's a fixer. He wants to come in. His economy, uh, he, he has chosen to preferentially deal with and use and bless broken hearts and broken I just give you a few examples. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this, but it takes broken soil to receive the seed and produce a crop. It takes broken clouds to give us the rain. A, a broken kernel of wheat or grain is what allows that stock to rise up and give us bread. And bread that is broken gives us sustenance and strength. And the scriptures and the gospel accounts of broken alabaster flask at the feet of Jesus gives the whole room a sweet fragrance as this offering is poured out. You, you catch it on to this? God likes broken stuff. He likes to use broken stuff. You think, man, I, don't, I just feel so broken inside. I don't know if God wants to use me. You're exactly where he wants you to be. I love the great preacher Adrian Rogers said. He said, men throw away broken things, but God never uses anything that he doesn't first break. Love that. I love it. I love preaching. I love saying to other people, I don't like it when it comes back to me. But, I, but I'm embracing by the grace of God. Maybe you're still not convinced. The broken pictures of Gideon's army allowed the torches to shine out in the darkness and around the Midianites. The nets that broke on that great catch of fish that day were the very thing that convinced Peter of Jesus' divinity. The breaking of the little boy's loaves and fishes fed the multitude, and on, and on, and on. I, I hope maybe as you read your Bible this week, you're going to begin to see brokenness everywhere, everywhere, because it is the paradigm uh, of, of what God wants to do in us and through us. Jesus broken, hanging on the cross, bringing us salvation. It's brokenness. Unbroken people are like unbroken horses. They're not of any use for anything. you got to break a horse. To be of use, they must be broken first. And Nehemiah was a broken man. The news of the status of God's people was overwhelming, but it was precisely the kind of brokenness that God wanted to bring into Nehemiah's heart. Because God does not use a man or woman greatly, save that he wounds them deeply. He won't use us for great things until he wounds us and breaks us. And we're going to see in the weeks ahead that Nehemiah's path to obedience begins with brokenness. It begins with shedding of tears, deep sorrow and repentance, times of prayer and fasting. And I would just say this morning, without much prayer and, and greatly aided by fasting and self-denial, there is little awareness of our own spiritual weakness and our dependence on divine help. What we're talking about doing, year three as a church, is beyond any of us. It's beyond me. If we don't pray, if we don't learn to pray and fast and seek God with, with broken hearts, we won't see we won't see the fullness of what He wants to do in us. And Nehemiah is a prototype of us. 
When we're broken before God, Jesus can step in. He takes those broken pieces and He transforms us. He comes to the dump of our broken hearts, the place where the world discards the things that it deems of little or no value. And He makes things of great beauty out of the things that we so easily discard. His light shining through it. His glory on display for all to see. Some diagnostic questions for you this morning would be, uh, as you think about brokenness, as we move forward, are all your rights surrendered? In your relationship to Jesus, have you laid down your rights? Have you embraced the inevitability of being rejected for the cause of Christ? It's a good diagnostic question. Have you embraced that? You're going to experience it. Are you willing to embrace failure if it means you are obedient in the attempt? You, you're obedient even though the thing failed. Let me tell you, that terrifies me as a church planter. That's horrifying. This whole thing could fail. And I have leaned back in the fact I, I followed the Lord with me. I had this moment, I got to tell you this story. When the boys were little, where are my, my sons? There's a hey, buddy. He was two, just tiny. And, and Noah was four. And we were in North Georgia, and it was uh, probably February or March, and there was this river, and we're by the river, and they're throwing, they're doing what little boys do, they're picking up rocks and throwing them in the river, because the river doesn't have much rocks. And that's what they did, right? And I, I went a little downstream, and there was this big tree that had fallen across the river. The river was probably oh, 20 feet wide, and probably only like three or four feet deep. It was clear running, beautiful, spring-fed mountain river from Georgia. And this big tree out over the river, and I walked out onto it, and it crossed, you know, spanned three quarters of the, the river. And I get out to the end of the tree, and somebody just cut it clean off with a chainsaw and hauled the rest away. And, and there's this gap between me and the other shore, me and the other bank. And I stood there for a minute thinking, I think I can make this. I think I can make this challenge. And about the time I'm having that conversation with myself, my wife, who's with the boys, just about 30 feet away, happened to look up and see where I was standing. And I, I looked up and I caught her eye, and I knew what she was thinking. She was like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. But there was something in my heart that said, you got to try it. you got to try it. Even if you fail, you've got to try it, right? And so I did what any self-respecting dude would do, right? I took two steps back. And I went, and I, and I was midair, and it was slow motion, right? It was just slow motion. And then there was, first there was exhilaration, and I thought, I'm going to make it. And then about a split second later, I realized I'm not. <laughs> and, that, and my feet landed just just before the bank, and I, and I ended up like thigh deep in freezing cold mountain spring water. And I remember very vividly hearing my wife say, why did you do that? <laughs> it's because I had to. I was compelled to. I had to try. I had to try. I think there's something in us with, with this. Are we embracing failure, even if it means we, we walk away with just a sense of we were obedient, even if failure. Failure is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Right? So it's brokenness. Brokenness. A willingness to walk in faith, even if we don't know how it's going to turn out. Do you have a growing sense of inadequacy when it comes to what Jesus wants to accomplish in you? I hope that you do. I hope that the vision he's putting in your heart for what he wants to do in you, even in your own heart as it relates to your spouse or your kids, it's like, 
I'm so not there. I just don't even know how to get to that place. And you feel the weight of inadequacy. You might just be broken. You might just be breaking. You might be in the place that God wants you to be. Jesus himself would say, we, we do this once a month when we take communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's quoting Jesus when he said, Take, eat, this is my body. What? Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we walk in brokenness, we walk in the steps of Nehemiah and we embrace the way of Jesus. Calls us to brokenness. So this morning, as adopted children of God, as ambassadors to the King of Kings, we have the joy and the privilege and the responsibility to go forth in our brokenness, sustained by His love and grace, to a world that is broken by sin, filled with broken people all around us who are hurting. And that's the mission. That's the mission. You won't be usable for the kingdom until you embrace brokenness. Just stand with me. I'm going to pray to you. We're asking you this morning, Lord, to, to give us broken hearts, broken and contrite spirits. You said in your word through David that you would not despise, you would not reject broken hearts and broken and contrite spirits. And so, Lord, we ask you for those things. We recognize right now the clarity in this moment that all that you want to do in us and through us to accomplish in, in this community, uh, just even in this church body, but beyond us, in, in impacting the nations with the gospel, is so far, insurmountably beyond us. We can't even begin to grasp how great the task is. And yet you want to use us. So Lord, we just want to be broken before you. We want to be broken in your presence. And we ask your spirit to do that work in us. We, we ask it with fear and trembling, not knowing how it's going to manifest. But we trust you. We trust you. Put our faith and our hope in you today. Pray these things in Jesus' name.